Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good afternoon. Would you turn your Bibles, please, to Job 25. Job 25. It's an unlikely passage for Good Friday, but I hope and trust that it will help us understand why it is that we call this Friday good. Job 25. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? This is the word of the Lord. These words were spoken to Job by Bildad, one of his three so-called comforters. Job was a man who suffered many sorrows in his life, not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. You could say he was persecuted for righteousness' sake by the devil himself. The devil came to God, and with God's permission, he um, sought to destroy Job's faith in God by taking away every earthly joy and comfort from him. But Job held fast to God throughout his troubles, never letting go of his conviction that he was righteous in God's sight and that therefore his great sufferings came upon him not uh, because of God's anger against him, but for some other purpose. This does not mean that Job was a sinless man. He wasn't. He inherited the same sin nature that you and I have inherited. This is true, we know, because Job was a descendant of Adam, And of all Adam's descendants, Paul says it well, that there is none righteous, no, not one. But more particularly, Job's sin nature is explicitly revealed by Job in this book. After he's listened to God's rebukes that come towards the end of the book, in chapter 42, Job says, well, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So while Job was undoubtedly a much better man than you or I, still he was a sinner. And not just a sinner, but a sinner worthy of damnation. As James points out, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one part is guilty of the whole law and has brought upon himself the condemnation of death. Nevertheless, it's true, and Job's right to insist upon it can constantly with his friends, that the sorrows he was enduring were not due to any sin on his part. This is clear from the first two chapters where God says twice to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. This claim of God is what brought on the sifting and the testing and the trial of Job. When after Satan argued back, pushed back to God and said, well, it's only because you take care of him so well. It's only because you bless him and protect him from me. But if you let me go down and take away all these wonderful things, he'll curse you like anyone else. And so we see that Job's suffering was ordained by God in order to prove 
before an audience of heavenly beings, God's own, God's own glory and honor did not result from sin on Job's part. And Job had confidence in this, for like Abel, he had um, obtained the testimony that, was, that he was righteous before God. This is what it says in Hebrews of Abel. He obtained the testimony that he was righteous before God. And, and Job held on to this testimony from God throughout all his troubles that he was not suffering for his sin, but for some other purpose. Just as Noah, a sinner, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and just as Lot, a man who offered up his daughters to the Sodomites, was called righteous Lot, and as King David, an adulterer and a murderer, God called him a man after his own heart, so Job, too, was a sinful man, And if he's less sinful, more righteous than these other characters in Scripture, it's only relative to to each other. It's in sight of God, he's a sinner. Job, a sinful man, God called blameless and upright. How does that work? This is what Job's friends wanted to know. They were completely baffled and disturbed by Job's consistent claim to be righteous. They believed, rightly, that it is in the nature of God to reward righteousness and to punish wickedness. This is a truth that's taught both in Scripture and in nature, a principle of sowing and reaping. And they were right to recognize it, but they had too narrow a view of it. They didn't realize that it allows often for many exceptions, especially in the life of God's children in, their, in the time of their earthly pilgrimage here on earth. We suffer for righteousness' sake, the godly. And they, they thought, though, that if Job was suffering, it must be because of some guilt on his part. If he, was, if he was under torment, it must be because he had some unconfessed sin that he was harboring in his heart. With many arguments, they tried to persuade Job of their view, but to no avail. The words of Bildad here in chapter 25 represent one of these arguments, one of these attempts to convince Job of his guilt. And as is often the case with Job's friends, they make their case very rationally, very well, and with a great deal of truth along the way. Calvin says of the whole exchange between Job and his friends that In the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case and his adversary maintains a poor one, but that Job maintaining a good case pleads it poorly and that his adversaries bringing a poor case plead it well. That's a good thing to remember as you're reading Job. It's a key to interpreting that book. And if that's true, then we can expect that Job's friends often make really good points and there's much to benefit from what they say. And here we see Bildad asking exactly the right question. How can a man be just with God? Or how can a man be righteous before God? That's another way of of framing this question he's asking. God who is awesome in authority and power, who outshines the moon and the stars in the brightness of his holiness, And to whom, by comparison, man is just a small thing, a worm, an unclean thing like a maggot. 
Who is he before Almighty God? How could he ever claim righteousness for himself? Answer that, Job, says Bildad. And when he's asking this, he's asking exactly the right question. The burning question, the one that's begged by Job's suffering and his claims to righteousness in light of it. But not only that, he's asking the essential question of our life, of every one of our lives, the question that's relentless, the question that nags us in the dark when we're alone with our thoughts, the question that motivates and drives every decision we make. It is the fundamental question of our life. How can Jody, that terrible sinner, who's done so many evil things and continues to do them every day, how can he be righteous before God? This is the fundamental question that God has written on our hearts. We were made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We were made for communion with God. St. Augustine puts it well when he says, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But left to ourselves, we have no idea how to take hold of God's rest, how to be in communion with him. The gulf of sin is infinite. We sense this deep in ourselves. We know it. How can we come to God? We have no peace with him because of our knowledge of him in his power and holiness. This is a knowledge that he has revealed to every man and woman and child in the world. I know this because of what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 1. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Every one of us knows. We know. It's written on our hearts. God has revealed it. He has, from heaven, he has made it known to us and in us that he is holy and that our sins deserve his anger and his wrath and his hell. Those sins that we commit every day, we know that they're worthy of death. The cheating that we gave ourselves to when we were faced with the test that we hadn't prepared for. The gossip that we indulge in to make ourselves feel superior to other people our boastful pride, our lustful eyes, our disobedience to our parents, our resentment of our husband or our wife, our slanderous tongues, our gluttony, our hatred of God. This is the stuff of our lives. This is going on constantly, coming out of us, constantly. And we know that it's contrary to God's law. And because of it, that we deserve hell. Now, what are we going to do about it? What can be done about it? That's the question. How can a man, a maggot, a worm, a sinner, how can he be just with God? How can he be righteous before God? Well, there's an infinite variety of ways 
that you can go about trying to answer this question. Uh, As many answers have been attempted as there are men to attempt them. Uh, You could say that the man's whole life is one long quest to deal with the problem of his guilt before God. What are some of the more popular ways that men have tried to answer Bildad's question? How can a man be just before God? Well, one is you can just check out. You can, you can self-medicate. You can tune it out. You can turn up the volume of, of your stereo. You can turn up the volume of entertainment in your life to such a degree that it, it may be effective most of the time in drowning out the voice of your conscience and the conviction of sin and the thought of God. That's, that's one response. It's one way to try to answer this question. I'm going to ignore the question. I'm going to drown it out as best I can with all the stuff of this world. I'm going to just give myself to it because I can't stand that thought. It's so disturbing. You can numb yourself with drugs and alcohol. You can become a partier. You can say, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Ha ha. There's a reason that scripture says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because the, the living there take it to heart. That's the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. We don't like to go to the house of mourning. We like to, we even turn the house of mourning these days into a celebration of life so that we don't have to think disturbing thoughts about God. We have an infinite number of ways we can work hard to drown out the voice of conscience and the thought of judgment. It's the ostrich approach to life, burying our head in the sand. Now, drugs and alcohol and Netflix is not a particularly sophisticated way of responding but it is a common one. But if you're, if you're interested in a more sophisticated approach to this, you can just become an atheist. You can thumb your nose at God. You can say, oh, here's how I'll respond to the question, how, does a, how can a man be just before God? God? Are you kidding me? Sin? What a joke. Sin's just whatever is, whoever's in power says it is at the time. That's all sin is. It's, 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 a, it's a social construct that we invent. Why do I say that this is just a lot like a more sophisticated way of self-medicating? Well, because it's just, the minute you become an, an atheist, what is just so evident about you? Your whole goal in life becomes, particularly the militant kind, which is very popular to be today. This is a popular way to respond to the question. The militant kind of atheist is just oozes out of them. They're on the warpath to get rid of God and his word anywhere they find it to silence the voice of Christians, the testimony of scripture in society and everywhere. So with the unsophisticated kind of self-medication, you just turn up the volume of everything around it to try to drown it out. The sophisticated kind is where you go on the warpath to actually try to remove it, the voice of conscience from the world, from your life. Christianity has to be gotten rid of because it reminds me of God. And I cannot bear that thought. I like what Doug Wilson says about um, atheism. He says it has two fundamental tenets. One, there is no God. And two, I hate him. 
It's self-delusional. And God scoffs at you if you're an atheist. You will stand before him and you cannot plead unbelief on that day. There's another approach to answering the question. That's to go all sentimental. You just, you can't, you can believe in God with, you can say you believe in God with this approach. You can sound godly. You can talk a lot of biblical words. You can say you believe in sin, but you make out God to be something less than he is and sin something a little bit less or maybe a lot less serious than it is. You cultivate a a kind of grandfatherly view of God, the kind of God who, yeah, he's disapproving of certain actions and activities, but he's willing to overlook them. Not for any particular reason other than just he's just willing to do that. That's a sentimental view of God, and it doesn't take seriously the horror of sin and the holiness of God and what that demands. You, you start saying things like, instead of sin, you use words like making mistakes, making bad choices. You lower sin, make it less awful than it is. Bring yourself up in the process, just sentimentally. You say, you know, I'm basically, I, I'm basically a good person. I think I do more right than I do wrong. At least I try to, and God likes people who try. It's just sentimentality. That's, but that is one way people try to answer this question in their lives. They just go all soppy. Another way, if you're not the kind of person that can stomach sentimentality, you can get all, you can go real. You can look at your sin and you can try to face it and get serious about dealing with it in your life and by some form of what? Self-flagellation, self-abasement. You can deal with your body harshly. You can go on fasts. You can go stand on a pole in the desert. You can try to remove yourself from the sin around you and be pure that way. You can cut yourself. This is a common way to deal with the burden of guilt in life. And all it amounts to is you trying to, in your body, bear or atone for sin. To make your body atone for your sin. And this, is, this is, doesn't work for a lot of reasons. Like, when will it end? Where does it end? How many times do you have to cut your thigh, your arm before you get over it and finally put guilt away. It, it doesn't help. It's completely hopeless and it just leads deeper and deeper into despair and, and depression. You cannot atone for your sin. It's way more horrible than that. Than what a little cut, what a little whip can, can manage. It's way more horrible. Another way you can try to answer the question is to become a Pharisee. 
Remember the, the Pharisee and praying in the, in the temple? Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men or like that man over there in particular. You just, you, you, you uh, in the name of God, you, you change the standard of God's law, you just make it relative to other people around you. Like any good Pharisee. You just judge yourselves based yourself based on how other people appear on the outside. You focus on the outside of your cup. As long as you can maintain a pretty upright image, you got it made. Because, I mean, because there's always somebody over there, you know, that you can look down on and feel superior to. And that's a way you can answer that question and go to bed at night. Sleep soundly. At least I'm not like Ben. I'm not like Nathan. You don't even measure up to Job. And Job was a sinner. How much less do you measure up to God? One of the, um, somebody here in this church has recounted to me a conversation he had with his wife where his wife was doing what women often do, comparing herself to other women in the church and was getting really discouraging. Now, I myself never do that. Comparing myself to to the rest of you and get discouraged and depressed. But some women do. And uh, this husband listened for a while to his wife, and then he said, sweetie, just stop. It's way worse than that. You have no idea. You don't have to compare yourself to so-and-so. You have to compare yourself to Jesus Christ. And that's an imp- that's just it, it, it was meant to completely blow it up for her because it's an impossible standard. Absolute perfection, not an ounce of sin. Every good gift, all the fullness of God. You can try to compare yourselves to others and that works sometimes for a while. But it, it's a mist, it's a vapor. It'll backfire on you, and it doesn't work because you answer to God. Another way is the way of, the, of Rome, the way of works salvation or works righteousness. It's very sophisticated because it uses a lot of the same words that we use, grace, faith, The, the, the view of Rome is that God makes you right with him a little more each day as you partake of the mass and go to confession, pray the rosary, protest against abortion, these sorts of things. And this is, these are their claims that by, um, if, if, or that if it, and if that's not enough while you, as long as you live. And they have to admit that it's not often enough for most people. It's for the select few that this will do the job for. But for most people, it's not enough um, to do just those things. And, and this has to be carried on after their death in a place called purgatory, which is just in, invented by them. It's not in scripture, something they've invented as a way to explain how this process can work to bring about a fitness for God, to be ready to stand in his presence and give an account for yourself. It, 
their way of salvation is that by doing this and this and this and this and this, enough times, it'll work sin out of you and it'll work enough righteousness into you that you'll come at some point, when you're ready, in good time, and we got a place for that if you don't get it done in this life, when you're ready, you can come before God and, and be justified. He'll say, tell me about every idle word, and you'll say, I don't speak idle words anymore. I got that worked out in purgatory. That's their scheme. But this is not, this is not Scripture's plan, God's plan of salvation. He uses a lot of the same words, and that's why it's so dangerous to us, but it is not God's way of salvation. What is God's way of salvation? How does God answer the question, how can a man be right before him? That's what we need to know, because it's really in reference to him. What would he say? How can a man be right before him? All of the attempted answers that I've referenced before fall under the category that you saw in Romans 1, which is um, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. There's an infinite number of ways to do this, but they're all the same. They all come down to the same thing. They're just a way of suppressing the truth, satisfying your conscience, but it's not enough. They do not answer. They don't take seriously enough the question that Bill Dad is asking here. How can a man, that maggot, that worm, be right before God? Well, this question is answerable, and it's answerable only in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, God's own answer to Bill Dad's dilemma. It's very simple, but it's very deep. We could go many, many places in Scripture to find this answer, but today we're going to go here to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one verse, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's God's answer to Bildad's question. Let's unpack it. He That's God the Father, our creator and our judge, the one whom we have to stand before. He made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and made man, who never sinned once and more than that fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf. He punished his own dear son, that innocent man, Jesus Christ. And he punished him in our place. He he replaced you with Jesus Christ and punished him, poured out his wrath on him, the wrath that you deserve, poured it out on Jesus. He did this, why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. And there it is, God's solution for how we receive a righteous standing before him. He takes our unrighteous record. He he takes upon himself our unrighteous record and is punished for it in our place. And he gives us his righteous record and the reward that comes with it, our sin for his righteousness. 
our death or for his reward. And then there's that last part. How is this brought about? Well, it's in him. That's how it's brought about. He did all these things so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this exchange of Christ's righteousness and our sin that, took, that God made and has brought about is only for those who are in Christ. It's for those who are joined to him in some way. And how is this joining brought about? It's join, this joining is brought about, as testified to in Scripture, um, as brought about by faith. It's brought about by faith and trusting in the gospel. This is how we're in him. This is the gospel answer of how a man can be justified before God. That, and we've sung about it in all the songs, and we've heard about it in the scriptures, and we've heard, learned about it in, in Sunday school, but it's a real question that we need to face. How can Frank Mead be justified before God? How can Will Tucker be justified before God? There is only one way. It's through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the only one who can bear the wounds that can pay for sin. The only blood that's pure that can be spilled to atone for sin. And God has provided it. God has provided it in Christ. And he offers it to you freely. You can just, you can have it. You can have it. The question is customarily asked on this day, this Good Friday, who, Christ, who crucified Jesus Christ? And godly people answer everywhere, I did. They're not willing to just say, oh, it was those Jews, like a good Pharisee would. They say, no, I did. I did. It's my sin that put him there. And that's a, that's a, that is the right answer, but there is an even righter answer. There's a better answer, even. A deeper one, a truer one, and that is that God did. God crucified him. Yes, for your sin. It's because of your sin. It's through the instrument of the Jews. But God himself, out of his great love for mankind, provided a sacrifice to atone for your sin. God is fully satisfied with that sacrifice. There's no more needed. And if you will trust in him by faith, you can have what Job had, what Abraham had, what Abel had, what David had. You can have that confirmation that you are righteous before God. You can receive it. You can trust in it and hope in it. You can be convinced of it. And it can help you weather all kinds of storms, all kinds of assaults by Satan. Who isn't the accuser of the brethren and who will come with questions like, oh, how can Ben be right before God? Give it up. That's hopeless. 
here, try this out (laughs) instead. And you can say, no, I've I've heard the message. I believed the truth. I've received it. Jesus Christ is able to save me and has done it. You'll be able to, with Job, to endure all kinds of suffering with hope. You'll be able to say, oh, though he slay me, still I will serve him. You'll be able to say with Peter, when, when all the ever, lots of other disciples and people were leaving following Jesus, Jesus, Peter, or Jesus turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave too? And he says, where else would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Christ's substitutionary atonement is the only answer to Bildad's question. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And this is the way they're saved. Not by just looking at Jesus and hoping that I'm going to become more like him and then God will approve of me. But seeing that Jesus has been crucified in my place and has satisfied the fullness of God's wrath for my sin. And the freedom and the joy that comes about, the peace in your heart is immense. There is no other peace than that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. Now it's customary on this day to offer up prayers for unbelieving people and especially for the Jews who pressured the Roman authority to crucify the Lord of glory. They cried out, crucify him. And even more so, they cried out, we have no king but Caesar and completely rejected their Messiah, hardening their heart in unbelief. Now, if you think that you would have done differently, you're wrong and you don't know yourself. Certainly you and I would have joined with the Jews in condemning Jesus on that day. And so when we ask on Good Friday who nailed Jesus to the tree, we do rightly say, I did. It was for the sins of the whole world that Christ died, not just for the Jews, but also for us Gentiles. And still, we were not there in the flesh. It was the Jewish people who were the special instruments of God's wrath, and a partial hardening has come upon that whole race because of what they did on that day so that God could come to the Gentiles and bless us. And, but also then to turn and make them jealous so that he could lead them back. And so it's customary for us to pray for the Jews, but also for all unbelieving people by name or by category on Good Friday, that, they, that all the world would come to know the Lord and that the fullness of Gentiles would be brought in and that then the finishing touch could be brought about through the Jews returning to Christ so that all the world can be blessed. Would you join me now in praying? O merciful God, you have made all men and you hate nothing that you have made nor do you desire the death of a sinner but rather that he should be converted and live. 
Have mercy, therefore, we pray, on all those who reject the gospel of your grace, on pagans and atheists, on Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, and on Roman Catholics, and on all who in their pride like to make much of their own ability. Knowing, Father, that you resist the proud but give grace to the humble, we do ask that you would grant the gift of humility to these people, help them to know themselves, cause them to see their depravity as you have in your grace allowed us to see ours, and lead them to repentance through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our only hope of salvation. And now, Almighty and Eternal Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we do especially appeal to you this day on behalf of your ancient people, Israel. Do not cast them off forever, O Lord, but look on them now in your mercy. Remove from them their blindness and hardness of heart. May the time come quickly when you cause the Jews to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah, uniting them to him by faith and grafting them in again into the rich root of the olive tree, your church. O Lord, let it be done in our day that you, let it be in our day, Lord, that you do these things, that we can see it and rejoice knowing that your kingdom is very near. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.